0: Hey everyone, you're about to hear one of our excellent episodes handpicked from the archives. Why? Because we believe in vacation time, and so do our members. After more than 10 years of perpetually verging on burnout, members voted to give me a French amount of time off each year, so I thank them for that and use this as an opportunity to urge you to agitate for better working conditions for yourself and across the board. Now, enjoy the fruits of our labor. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the cracks and fissures appearing ever more frequently in the neoliberal order that was already widely criticized before the pandemic. Stripped it completely bare, exposing all of the inherent inequality and inhumanity baked right into the system clips today are from Citations Needed, The Majority Report, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and Economic Update, with an additional members-only clip from The New York Times.
1: One thing that I'd love to hear your thoughts on is the idea that economics as a field of study, as a concept kind of unto itself, is a science, right, is a cold, rational, almost academic exercise, unconcerned with emotion. And this idea that you can just kind of study or understand economics or even further organize your entire society around, quote unquote, economics or the economy and economy oftentimes comes with Another idea embedded in it, kind of implicit to it, sometimes glaringly explicit, <laughs> but also quite gendered. The idea that the economy is set up, ordered, operated by serious men making tough choices in our imperfect world. Now, how does this idea, this kind of, you know, cigar filled back room is how the, economy operates but it's also very cold and rational right it's not like human beings making concerted decisions how does this supposed detachment from emotion help make some of the crueler elements of the economics of our time of the profession of an economist how does that kind of almost embedded cruelty gendered cruelty often become more palatable
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, first of all, everything is political. Economics is political. Science is political. So to say, well, economics is just cold, hard science. Well, science is not cold, hard science, as we can see during the course of the pandemic, obviously, and through many other examples. So that whole idea, I think, is a fallacy. But I think, in particular, this idea that you're kind of drawing out, right, that it's, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's just How it is, and it's this neutral, cold free market, you know, is basically just an excuse for outrageous inequality and complete devastation of people's lives. You know, the fact that we have death via poverty on a mass scale during a time in history where we have the productive capacity to food and shelter and clothe the world's population many times over, it masks. The fact that that's a political decision, the fact that we have the means to feed, clothe and shelter the world's population, and yet we choose not to, and I'm saying we, I don't mean me and you, but I mean the political elite status quo, etc. this is a political decision to not organize our economy, to not organize distribution in such a way to actually meet those needs, that you would have millions of children dying of hunger every year, that's unfathomable that that would happen when it doesn't actually need to happen. And so you can kind of, behind the cloak of a cold and calculating market, you can say, well, that's just how it is. So you either have to admit this is a political calculation to enrich the few at the expense of the many, or you hide behind that kind of veneer of a a rational market which is not just the like newest libertarian idea but is goes back to the foundations of classical economy and Adam Smith's invisible hand mm-hmm. some people play by the rules they get ahead they should be rewarded and then other people the implication is either did something or they didn't do enough of something else to be worthy of having access to ample resources or to enough resources to Survive and thrive.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this is fascinating to me because there's a similar social and psychological dynamic that our previous guest Alec Karakatsanis has talked about in the legal profession. That for sort of decades, lawyers were seen as being instruments of a system that was sort of cold and harsh, but they were sort of just functionaries, and their job wasn't to really question the kind of bigger pictures that someone was getting ten years in jail for, or you know, in prison for stealing hand soap, because it was their third strike or whatever, that's what the people voted on. That's just what it is. And I'm just doing my job. And this is sort of a, it's a system in place and the kind of human face. And it's actually not only do you ignore the human stakes in in a lot of these conversations, but it's actually considered a, a virtue. You see this a lot with the way people talk about the Supreme Court, right? They're sort of above the fray. We're all just buddies. We all drink afterwards after we decide the fate of 15 million women in in Texas who can no longer have an abortion, et cetera, et cetera. I'm kind of fascinated by this dynamic because you see this play out a lot in economics. They'll sort of say, look, this isn't something I think is good or bad. It's just where the numbers lead me. There's this mysterious – because it sort of offsets the responsibility onto this mysterious algorithm or or formula. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about in these episodes – is this kind of psychological dynamic. And one of the things, you know, you take econ 101 in high school or or college, they'll say, here's the inputs and here's the, into the model. And you're really not supposed to challenge the inputs. The inputs are just the inputs. They're what they are, right? And of course, if you create a model and you create a bunch of inputs and you skip past the ideological implications or assumptions, right, of those inputs, then naturally it will lead itself to certain outcomes. So I I wanna sort of talk about, if you don't mind, how do you sort of condition that kind of psychology of disinterestedness in the axioms themselves? And again, I know this is a general statement. I know there are plenty of economists who don't do this, but as a kind of professional norm, norm fetishizing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that the field of economics, maybe more than any other field, is really the mainstream of it is about a defense of the status quo. So I think that connection is really right. You know, whether it's law or it's the free market, the question of well, who makes these rules and for whose benefit? I was at this forum this past weekend that was organized by the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard and the Mercatus Institute, which is sort of like a free market academic institute.
3: And George Mason, right?
2: Yes, exactly. So, they co-sponsored this forum on socialism versus capitalism, which was fascinating. And we kind of got to butt heads a little bit and argue with people that are the so-called experts of the pro-market policies and so on.
3: I'm sure they were charming.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, some of them were very nice people, but the assumptions, the underlying assumptions of all of these arguments were just phenomenal. So, like, one of the things that came up was around housing. And so, one of the pro-market participants was defending evictions on the basis of, you know, there's nothing violent or coercive about it. It's just the state is enforcing the rules of the game. And it's just, that's all it is. It's the rules of the game, just like a hockey coach would enforce the rules of hockey. And of course, leaving aside the fact that, obviously, the rules aren't enforced equally. You know, landlords that preside over rat-infested buildings, gas cut off for over a year. I was just speaking to a couple tenants a couple days ago about their building where they haven't had gas in their building for over a year. You couldn't get the building taken away from the landlord, despite them breaking these rules. Just to even sue them is like this incredibly arduous task. Whereas to evict tenants, that's just, well, enforcing the rules of the game. But it really gets to, like, what are these rules? Who made them and who benefits from them? And the free market myth is that the market kind of operates outside of the state or even in opposition to the state in this kind of voluntary free space. But in reality, the market depends on the enforcement of property rights for the landlords or intellectual property in the case of you know drugs and vaccines and so on and so forth. The rules are incredibly skewed. And that's something that I can't get into the psychology and the minds of conservative and libertarian economists and mainstream economists and so on, except to say that the entire field is sort of based on perpetuating the status quo. And that's what gets advanced in, whether it's in the universities and academia, and that's what gets advanced in terms of who winds up as the advisors and the quote-unquote important people in creating policies.
4: Does this era end and lead us into what is essentially a new era of of neoliberalism, I guess, that has been... You know, waiting and growing, I guess, uh, since Mont Pelerin and just waiting yeah. for their opportunity and, and guys from your school uh, waiting for their opportunity.
5: And can I ask I have an
2: addition to that question, too? Like, how did some of the Cold War dynamics that you mentioned earlier, did they cement themselves during this era where, like, everything became existential? It's either private private investment or it can't be public investment. And that kind of like heightened some of these neoliberal Uh, this neoliberal rocket ship.
6: (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's, that's right. And I think there's one account of the more recent period, the period we're in, which, which, which I think is wrong, which sort of goes like this, which is, you know, in 1980, Ronald Reagan's elected, then all neoliberal hell breaks loose. And and, and here we are. And I think, no, you have to kind of look at the post-war period uh, some of the continuities across across the post-war period. And you have to understand why the New Deal order failed during the 1970s. Now, it failed uh, most tangibly because there was a, an era of inflation during the 1970s. But the, the fundamental weaknesses of the, of the New Deal order, I think, were two. One which we talked about is you're leaving investment in private hands. There's a crisis of profitability in the 1970s uh and so there's capital flight there's capital flight from the uh, in terms of deindustrialization and there's there's global capital flight which which undermines the economic anchor of the new deal order which was the expectation that there'd be sufficient private fixed productive investment to anchor the economy and then second we've also mentioned you know that the new deal order privileged a particular individual the white male breadwinner and there's all kinds of politics coming out of the civil rights movement uh, that's going to destabilize that as well. So by the time you're in the 1970s, you know you have a liberal political order that's that's in crisis, and it should have been in crisis, you know, given its its fault lines and its and its weaknesses. In the book, I argue that the central event that gets us into the new order is the Volcker shock. Uh, that's when uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, or Carter, and a lot of deregulation efforts. You know, two began under Carter, not under Reagan, which is important to, to note, began under the Democratic Party. Paul Volcker is appointed the new chairman of the Federal Reserve by President Carter to try to tame the inflation crisis. And he, he jacks interest rates up to you know, extraordinarily high degrees. It causes a very sharp recession in, from 1980 to 1982. And when you come out of the Volcker shock, that's where you're in when you're in a new age a it's a new age defined by short termism by shifted investment towards towards finance by dependence upon debt and just the absence of of wage growth for most americans and that that that's defined the you know this economic period from the 1980s um you know till today i think it's fair to say
4: was the response to that recession. That was created by basically making money so expensive. Um, yeah. How much of what Reagan did in that era, um, how how predetermined was that outcome? I guess I should say coming after that uh, recession. Like, had it not been Reagan in some fashion, but of course, you know, maybe it would inevitably had to be because yeah. of, of that, but had um you know i don't know uh I, I mean i'm trying to come up with somebody who could have been the hero in that moment but had it been uh had there not been someone who said like you know what let's um lower the the taxation on capital let's uh allow for stock buybacks let's really promote all these things that are going to create the financialization of our economy and maybe culminate ultimately you know 20 years later like what would have happened or what could have happened
6: So Reagan's an important politician because of how how much he changed the terms of political debate about economic questions, right, with respect to taxation, with respect to how we should think about regulation. Uh, So he's very important there. With that said, I mean, Reagan, when Reagan came into office, he said, we're going to cut taxes, we're going to liberate the market, there's going to be a national manufacturing revival, you know the trade deficit will end. The savings rate will go up. I mean, everything Reagan promised economically, like the exact opposite, <laughs> the exact opposite happened. So he he changes the the tone in politics. He changes the rhetoric, and that that's that's very important. But I think the the presidency that actually installs the new regime uh, is the presidency of Bill Clinton. When you look at the actual legislation with respect to finance. And you actually get a a coherent, you know, Reagan says it's going to be a, a manufacturing revival. The exact opposite happened. You know, Clinton, you know, especially after 94, after triangulation, after they lose the Congress, where he shifts to the right, you know, they came up with a very coherent vision of a center, 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 center left vision of globalization that's going to be finance led, which says we have to liberate capital right we have to, to, to aid capital mobility and that's going to lead to a kind of equality of opportunity and it's going to work out to the benefit of all except it didn't
7: how would you fund the elections have abolished private funding? Public funding, how would you structure
8: that? First thing to do is to cut down the electoral process to a few months, like every civilized country does. You don't have elections running for years. Then there should be a certain amount of public funding which is available. There should be restrictions on how much concentrations of private power or the super-rich can pour into elections in one or another way, often dark money, Uh, you can have other measures like providing each person with a fixed amount and saying, spend it the way you like on the election. There are a lot of technical devices that can be used. Another thing which we really ought to do, I think, is move towards a parliamentary system. We have a monopoly on the election by two organizations which call themselves political parties, better described as voter mobilization organizations, which then do pretty much what they want, independent of the voters. I should add that one part of our system is that most of the population has essentially no representation, meaning their own representatives pay almost no attention to their own opinions. That's been studied very well in mainstream academic political science. Martin Gillen's, Benjamin Page, Larry Bartel's careful work. Roughly, maybe 70% of the population of voters are literally unrepresented. Their representatives are listening to other voices, the ones who are going to fund the next election. All of that can be changed. We can have people actually be represented by the people they vote for we can move towards a system in which smaller parties have a chance, a parliamentary system. That's the way major parties develop and grow. The Labour Party in England became a major party from a very small beginning. In a parliamentary system, it could have a voice. In other countries, Greens can have a voice because and grow into serious parties in a parliamentary system. I think there are many advantages to that. But it really all comes down to something much more fundamental, high concentration of capital and protection of high concentration of capital from public accountability. As long as that exists, all the technical manipulations in the world aren't going to change much.
7: Well, as we know, we're stuck with this federal system, and Congress is all we have right now, to match up against these giant global corporations which have no allegiance to community or nations other than to abandon them or exploit them, pit them one another. How would a progressive or People's Congress deal with workers, unions, existing union laws, anti-union laws, to vastly expand membership in unions and make them democratic? Love to hear your views on that.
8: Well, again, many steps. First of all, undo what has been done for the last 40 plus years. Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher across the Atlantic, who instituted these neoliberal programs, they and their advisors understood very well that when you're going to launch bitter class war attacking working people and the general public, You better eliminate their means of defense. And the major means of defense are labor unions. So the first acts of Reagan and Thatcher were to move to smash the unions. Reagan resorted to means that were at the time illegal all over the world, except apartheid South Africa, bringing in scabs, permanent replacement workers to replace working people on strike other means to destroy unions. All sorts of complex measures were devised to undermine and prevent union organization. One of them was called NAFTA. Now we're up to Clinton. NAFTA, which was strongly opposed by the labor movement for good reasons, one of its consequences was that organization efforts for unionization could be killed by warnings from management you know, speak signs on the door saying, transfer Operation Mexico. Lots of ways to say, if you vote for the union, we're just going to close you down and go to Mexico. Well, that happens to be illegal. But when you have a criminal state, you can be as illegal as you want. Nothing happens. This was no small matter. There was research taken under NAFTA laws, in fact, by Kate Bronfenbrenner, labor historian at Cornell, which found that about 50% of organizing efforts were undermined by these illegal tactics, which the government just winked at. Criminal state says, fine, if you want to destroy unions, the so-called right-to-work laws, which are basically right-to-scrounge laws, means if you want, you can have the union represented, but you don't have to pay for it, uh, passed by the courts. These are bitter attacks on unions, lack of taking away card check, all sorts of devices were used to undermine labor law. Also, the right-wing administrations, which includes the Democrats, and took measures to weaken the LRB, the system that offers workers some protection. So there's been a major, we can only call it class war, going on for 45 years, which has began in the late Carter years, took off with Reagan, has led to a situation where workers are finding it extremely hard to organize many barriers. It always was difficult, but now it's much more difficult. We might try to remember what things were like in the 1950s when there was a president named Dwight Eisenhower whose position, loudly spoken, was that anyone who interferes with the right of American workers to organize doesn't belong within our political system. Anyone who opposes New Deal measures doesn't belong in our political system. That was called conservatism in the 1950s.
1: I think the kind of mother of all of them right now for this topic is the quote unquote economy that term itself, you know, we hear that uh, poll show, you know, the economy is what is most important to prospective voters, right? Or to people on the street. What's the number one, you know, bread and butter issue, right? The economy. It's a thing that is just assumed to exist rather than being created, defined, maintained, you know, enforced by humans as a choice. It can mean stuff like gas prices, or the stock market, or, you know, someone's personal experience trying to get a job, you know, is the economy good or bad? Is it strong or weak? I think, you know, we were just talking about news media, the idea that does the economy just serve as a synonym for like, the NASDAQ numbers or Dow Jones, you know, ticker, like, can we talk about this idea, like the kind of popular notions of, quote, unquote, the economy, and how these concepts are used again and again by our pundit class, by reporters, and what this concept, the economy, deliberately omits, I think, from our analysis and even our understanding of what we're talking about when we use that term.
2: Right. So- it goes back to this idea of separating out economics from politics, that these aren't deliberate decisions, that the way that things are set up right now, that the fact that we have historic inequality, that these aren't political decisions and the outcome of policy, the outcome of things like the minimum wage not being raised for umpteen years or any any number of other things it divorces it from politics and says there's just economics. And yeah, usually, right, the way that it's talked about in the mainstream is a preoccupation with the sort of surface level machinations of the economy. So prices, stocks, currencies, maybe monetary policy, and it really separates not only economics from politics, but also economics from like regular people's lives like there's the stock market over there technocratic arguments about the GDP and then we have like our lives over here as though economics is not fundamental to every aspect of our lives and I think that's broken down somewhat recently in part just stretching back a little bit further right to the last 10 years just the last decade since the Great Recession and Occupy Wall Street, putting ideas of class and economics back into regular language and discussions that we live in a world dominated by the 1% at the expense of the 99% that we have a record-breaking inequality. All of these things has come back into a sort of more mainstream discussion, not necessarily in terms of what we hear from like the pundit class, but in terms of the kind of conversations that have, you know, begun to take place. And so I think there's also more of a sense than there used to be, right, that the stock market is unhinged from reality, that actually we do need to concern ourselves with economic issues like minimum wage, talking about essential workers during the pandemic, that like safety and compensation for essential workers or investment in clean energy versus fossil fuels, right? These are not just economic issues. These are like life or death questions for our planet. But I think even with that beginning to break down, there is still this assumption that the experts know best and the experts have ideological biases that favor the status quo. And I think that that really speaks to why it's important also for the left to inhabit these spaces and to actually analyze the economy and to go further and be able to talk about not just investment and wages, but also to talk about, you know, to bring back into the discussion something that both conservatives and liberal takes on the economy kind of leave out, which is that Mm -hmm. the entire edifice of the economy is based on exploitation, that that underpins all these questions. So that when you look at just as one example, right, the labor market, right now, everyone's talking about how there's increased leverage for workers in a tight labor market. And that's true, and and that's a good thing, and it's relative, but it's all very relative. And so the assumption of mainstream economics is that, you know, you have two equal players meeting each other on a level playing field, workers sell their ability to work to the highest bidder. And so now you have a slightly tighter labor market, etc. But one of these players, the worker, (laughs) is compelled through economic compulsion to work or starve, Mm -hmm. you know, to accept whatever terms they can get in order to survive. So, you know, if you think about like the debate around unemployment benefits, like the Republicans were screaming bloody murder because having substantial unemployment benefits means that workers didn't have as much of incentive to go back to work. But what that really means is that they weren't compelled upon the threat of starvation to work at unsafe minimum wage jobs in the middle of a pandemic. And so the whole basis of the discussion assumes that you need these economic incentives to work, which is really another way of saying economic coercion. So I don't know, those are some of the ways that I think questioning the framework of the discussion is really important.
3: Yeah, that was a fascinating few months during the whole... uh made up labor shortage panic in the Republicans. And then, of course, eventually Democrats supported the sunsetting of the UI extensions because it was one of the rare examples where people were overtly saying, I mean, I think Lindsey Graham even said this explicitly, that people are not going to work if they are worried that they're not going to have destitution and starvation as a result. Like it was all the sort of veneer went away and you had these lobbying groups, National Retail Association, National Restaurant Association, Chambers of Commerce, etc., Explicitly saying like, look, our industries can't not can't survive unless it's bare bottom low rung wages, Wait, but, which are literally the only alternative to complete destitution Uber as well. And so I don't know that was a because sometimes you'll say like, OK, the you know, the economy needs a certain the quote unquote economy, the American economy, because so much of our industries require precarity. It needs to have a certain amount of poverty, really, as a basically as a threat. Yeah. And then people say, Oh, that's a little paranoid or conspiratorial. And then you sort of see that explicitly being advocated by these kind of industry trade groups and politicians. You say, Well, okay, well, there it is. I mean I mean, you know, it's like if tomorrow Joe Biden, the totally fake, not real version of Joe Biden, said, um, you know, we're gonna give five hundred billion dollars to solve homelessness that housing as of today is a right Mm -hmm. i mean i don't think people can imagine how much of a meltdown there would be from not only the chambers of commerce and the retail you know associations and the restaurant associations and all the trade groups for low-wage jobs the silicon valley lobbyists for gig workers but imagine you know the real estate industry i mean it would be a meltdown because again the fear of homelessness is like why people will permit you know sexual harassment and abuse from their manager at subway otherwise why would i exactly So, um, yeah, I think the idea of coercion is such a fascinating topic, but it's, again, it's sanitized through this language of economics. Mm -hmm. You know, it's better than the alternative is what they say. It's like when Nick Kristoff lobbies for, for sweatshops for 20 years, he says it's better than the alternative.
7: How would you structure or restructure giant corporations? which have created this corporate state, Wall Street, merging with big government, turning it against the people and its impact on the world, now we have the metaverse and we have just runaway corporate power strategically planning almost everything in our political economy, including commercializing childhood. How would you deal with the structure, which starts with the chartering of corporations by states and the board of directors, shareholders, What would you do with the giant corporate structure, which has a great resiliency to fight back even after it loses? Well,
8: this has to be done in steps. I mean, the farthest step, the one that should be reached, is just to eliminate them. Okay, but go back to what classical liberals like John Stuart Mill, Abraham Lincoln envisioned, namely working people owning and running their own enterprises. That's the long-term goal. You have to go step mm-hmm. by step. First step would be to rescind the measures taken since Reagan, the neoliberal measures. These were following rules laid down by their economic guru, Milton Friedman. His dictum was that corporations have no responsibility to the public. As you said, they are chartered. The chartering of a corporation is a gift from the public. You don't want the gift. It gives all sorts of advantages. You don't want the gift just to stay a partnership. But according to Milton Friedman, corporations take the gift but offer nothing in return. They have no responsibility other than to enrich themselves. And, of course, enriched the boards of directors and the CEO. Reagan also introduced other measures to ensure that corporations would be able to, and the wealthy, would be able to rob the general public. So he changed the rules of corporate governance so that CEOs can, in effect, pick their own the board that sets their remuneration. As a big surprise, CEO salaries skyrocketed way beyond anything else in the world or what they had ever been, bringing management up with them. Goes on. Under Reagan, tax havens were legitimized. They weren't before. More robbery. There have been attempts to estimate the robbery of the public during the 40 years of neoliberalism, Reaganite, Friedmanite neoliberalism. Incidentally, another one was to deregulate. Deregulation, Sounds nice on paper, but it has the obvious consequences of leading to increasing monopolization. Big fish eat the little fish. So now sector after sector of the economy is virtually monopolized. More was done. Now we're going to Clinton, who joined in. The trade agreements, the so called free trade agreements, which have certainly are not free and have little to do with trade, provide Extraordinary protection for, they provide essentially monopoly pricing rights to corporate structures, even when they're, as is often the case, their inventions and creations are largely subsidized by the public. They're given unprecedented patent rights for much longer than ever in the past, and also process as well as product patents. We're seeing that right now with COVID. When, say, Moderna, which has created a number of billionaires in the last year or two, thanks to products that were largely created in the public domain and then they marketed. But they can maintain control over the process of production, which they're insisting on, and over the product so that poor countries around the world can't get access to it. Things like that are happening all the time. Well, one step would be to dismantle all of this and to go back to what was true during the pre-neoliberal period, not a wonderful period by any means. You had a lot to say about what was wrong with it and changing it. But nevertheless, as compared with the neoliberal period, it would be quite a step forward.
0: Now, I just have to introduce the next 45 seconds for those of you who won't recognize the voice by sound alone, but also to point out that for anyone who thinks that the ideas just being put forward by the likes of Noam Chomsky and Ralph Nader are purely far-left nonsense, this is none other than Ronald the Gipper
8: Reagan. In the marketplace, our people benefit from direct and indirect business ownership. There are currently close to 10 million self-employed workers in the United States. That's nearly 9% of total civilian employment. And millions more hope to own a business someday. Furthermore, over 47 million individuals reap the rewards of free enterprise through stock ownership in the vast number of companies listed on the U.S. stock exchanges. I can't help but believe that in the future we'll see in the United States and throughout the western world an increasing trend toward the next logical step employee ownership it's a path that benefits a free people
0: i agree it is a path that benefits a free people just not the ones who are already wealthy
5: i wanted to identify who's taking the lead and what kind of business structure supports sustainability. And my research led to discoveries that I've outlined in the book, Prosperity in the Fossil-Free Economy, which dives into this alternative business model that can uh, pursue the triple bottom line of sustainability, social goals, and financial goals. And that is the cooperative business form.
9: Well, you know, that's what I want really to tease out of of you now and to recommend your book because it does that because it answers or at least offers part of an answer about why co-ops and worker co-ops ought to be on the agenda for people to th- learn about, think about, debate and discuss. They have their strengths and weaknesses like everything else, but they are an alternative that hasn't gotten anywhere near the attention it deserves. Or at least let me put that as a question. Do you have a sense of your own ending up intrigued by, interested in co-ops and how they might better address the problem? Is that something happening broadly in the social sciences? Do you encounter others in your fields or allied fields that are coming to this? Is, Is this an emerging, is it fair to say that it's an emerging consciousness or recognition?
5: Yes, uh, you hear about it more and more, both in the popular press and in academia, but there isn't enough recognition yet. And so, when I went to write this book, there just wasn't that much out there on this. And there were no books that were bridging and critically looking at environmental sustainability and how that's tied to the Cooperative business design and how cooperatives can be leaders in that area. So I want to frame this more about thinking about the democratic economy. And we often talk about the climate in terms of tragedy and avoiding suffering. And I want to tip that on its head and think about uh, redesigning how business Produces broadly shared wealth that can allow us to prosper while we transform to a more democratic economy that doesn't rely on fossil fuels. So, we have this enormous opportunity for transformation in our economy uh, as we shift off of fossil fuels. And it's an opportunity to kind of rethink how these businesses are designed so that we have enterprises that are more democratic. And what I mean by that is where we have more owners governed democratically, where each worker has one vote, where sustainability and deep decarbonization are built into the core purpose of business. And businesses are really improving communities and sharing prosperity as part of their core design.
9: Well, you know, uh, I've taught occasionally in business schools, and I have a lot of friends who are graduates of or teachers in business school. So, in a way, you are confronting, in the very words you just used, you are confronting all of those folks, many of whom are sympathetic in some general way with environmentalism and so forth. You are confronting them, though, with having to rethink whether the tried-and-true basic principle that business is about profit maximization and business is about profit as the bottom line— maybe has to now be faced not as a truism, but as a problem to be overcome or to be solved in some way. Are you finding resistance along those lines?
5: I think that I would reframe that from a confrontation to an invitation. And that we can see from looking at these major metrics of social progress and environmental progress that we are headed in the wrong direction. Uh, and so a serious interrogation of the business structure that's at the heart of that is overdue. And I would say it's an invitation because it's an invitation to lead a better life, to have you know less violence in society, to have more people who are... Uh, living in ways that are enriching. and I also want to just emphasize that these cooperatives, they, they can be organized as not-for-profit, but they also can be organized as for-profit enterprises. The distinction is that they're multi-purpose, that they have a purpose based on ethics, values, and principles that are shared internationally. And these business forms are a lot more common than most people think. They operate in most sectors of the economy in most countries in the world. And um, there, uh, there are all different forms of them, insurance cooperatives, energy cooperatives, mutual, water mutuals, ones that are organized around workers, organized around farmers, organized around consumers. I mean, there are so many different variations on this theme that uh, your colleagues in business schools could be teaching about uh, to uh, really uh, harness the interest that people have in sustainability and in trying to rethink how we are interacting in our global economy.
9: I couldn't agree more, but I guess I have a little bit different experience because my colleagues in the economics, which is what I've taught most of my life, have wanted to teach a generation, or several generations, that somehow, and it's always quite nebulous and magical, maximizing profit is somehow automatically going to lead us to all the other good things in life that we are concerned about, so that we can kind of shortcut. We don't have to worry about sustainability and all the others, because the pursuit of profit is this magical thing that will get the best output for the biggest majority in some way which I have never sorted out why I should believe that, and we get into a little bit of tension with my colleagues when I say to them, wouldn't it be more sensible to recognize that we have multiple objectives, that they are different, and that we have to be concerned about our business activities in terms of all of these objectives— not take the kind of weird shortcut that by maximizing one thing, all the others are going to somehow take care of themselves. This is a kind of, if you allow the philosophy, essentialism that we ought to, ought to be skeptical about. Uh, l- let me Let me move us toward the end because we have limited time. What do you think is the biggest resistance to getting people to think about cooperative organizations as at least part of a solution uh, to the sustainability issue.
5: Well, I think you you uh, highlight that when you talk about the conflict with your business colleagues. I mean, some business schools are starting to teach sustainability. We have um, major shifts in the multinational and the investor-owned world where this is this uh, sustainability is. A focus now. The the question is: Is it a buzzword, and is it going to mean anything? Um, how many business schools are actually teaching about cooperatives? Hardly any. How many law schools are teaching about social enterprise design? Hardly any. Um, so, without people educated in this business model, it will be somewhat underutilized. And one of the things I found in Spain too, where they do have um, a very robust. Worker owner cooperative sector, they passed laws in 2011 to promote the social economy and set goals for its flourishing that reflected their appreciation of all this adds to the economy beyond financial returns. And so we can see that a serious effort to create an ecosystem of support involves legal reforms and education. You can get a lot more details about this in my book. Prosperity in the Fossil-Free Economy, uh, where I have actual examples of leading businesses that have been able to balance uh, multiple purposes, uh, including pursuing financial, but not have that overshadow everything else.
4: an impossible question uh, for you.
10: Okay.
4: Um, A, absent of a pandemic, Mm
10: -hmm.
4: is there some type of progression as you look back over the 200 years where you could sort of like, there's a a trajectory where you could perhaps, and I know as a historian, this is not your job, but where you could perhaps get a sense of what the trajectory was to the extent that there was, has the pandemic? It's changed the dynamic right now, at least as of now, in terms of uh, of labor, um, it, you know, power in this country. And who knows if it's going to be durable? Uh, there's some who are arguing that it that it will. Is the pandemic going to fundamentally alter that trajectory?
6: Well, you, you, you quite quite rightly, it's an impossible question, but I, but I won't dodge it. I mean, I think the answer is is yes. Uh, you know. Of course, we have to see. I mean, I argue in the book; the book really stops in 2010. You know, it stops with, with the turn to austerity in 2010. That actually, you know, given the the depths of the crisis in 2008, that it looked like it could be a turning point, a new age of American capitalism. But instead, in terms of the economics, it didn't happen at all. Actually, uh, the Obama administration very competently, you know, put that capitalism that existed since the 1980s back together. And that's the economy we really still had going into the pandemic. With that said, you know, politics and, and the kind of sensibility around, you know, is the economy doing well or not? That's really shifted over the last 10 years. So I think that kind of neoliberal age is fractured. I think Trump especially contributed towards fracturing it by turning to economic policies, some that were right out of the Reagan playbook, like tax cuts, but others trade, you know, are very, you know, anathema to typical conservative, or even, you know, the kind of 1990s high tide of of trade liberalization. So I I think even before the pandemic, you could, it's not clear what, right, but it's clear that things are breaking up. It's clear, I think, to, to most people who who are you know even remotely uh you know wise about these issues the levels of inequality in, in in the in the economy are are just not sustainable they're not sustainable economically they're not sustainable for our politics or they're not sustainable socially so so i think even before the pandemic the mood was very much that something's got to something's got to give here and the pandemic so far we've seen both in terms of of uh of, of the fiscal side of, of realizing that the government has much more financing capacity, you know, to do the things with, that we need to be done that we had realized before. And then the labor side too, where there's um, arguably it's kind of like a, a strike wave, right? Like a general strike, much like we saw coming out of World War II. I think a very similar episode uh, and we'll see how much leverage, you know, working people can get on the economy coming out of that. But, but I think things are changing and, um, you know, I, I we'll see what happens. But very likely we're ending entering into a, an age of, of capitalism with very different different qualities.
0: Hey, members, we've reached that magic moment again where everyone else is getting kicked all the way to the end of the show, whereas you have more bonus content to enjoy. So, as always, thanks for your support.
11: I think, you know, Americans tend to view politics as a competition of us versus them. And and they tend to think that if they would just get out of the way, then we can do the things that we want to do. There is no them standing in the way. There's just the we of Democrats and their supporters, and they get to decide what policy should look like in those states, and that is an
12: opportunity for them to implement their vision. For this story, I also delved into this giant document. It is the 2020 Democratic Party platform. If you want to really understand what Democrats Democrats say they want what their vision is for America it's found inside of this document this document serves as a guide as we zoom into these states to answer this question what do democrats really do when they have all the power
2: nearly 554,000 homeless people from the 25 wealthiest americans shows they're paying little in income taxes compared to their fortunes sometimes nothing at all we cannot in good faith, blame the Republican party when House Democrats have a majority. There's still very intense segregation happening in all kinds of forms all over this country.
12: Okay, so let's start with California. To me, California is like the quintessential liberal state. From the state legislature to the whole executive branch to most of the big cities, Dems hold majority control. So what do they do with all this power? Looking at California, you have to look at housing. Okay, now wait, listen. When I hear the words housing policy, I tend to sort of doze off, but Binya insists that housing policy and what is happening in California is definitely worth looking at.
11: You cannot say that you are against inequality in America unless you are willing to have affordable housing built in your neighborhood.
12: And Democrats completely agree here in this document. The word housing is mentioned over a hundred times. The neighborhood where you're born has a huge influence
11: on the rest of your life. Children who are born in neighborhoods with degraded environmental conditions, with a lack of Access to high quality public services, poor schools, poor public transit, are at a permanent disadvantage. And they even say verbatim,
12: housing in America should be stable, accessible, safe, healthy, energy efficient, and above all, affordable. Housing is a human right. Housing is a human right.
11: The rent is going through the roof! Housing is a human right!
12: How does California do when it comes to housing?
11: You know where those signs are when you drive into a state that says, Welcome to California? They might as well replace them with signs that say, Keep out. Because in California, the cost of housing is so high that for many people, it's simply unaffordable. The the state has simply, for the most part, stopped building housing. I mean, there are cranes, there's housing going up, but it has slowed down over time really, really sharply, and it is nowhere near sufficient to keep pace with California's population. And so what you have is, is not enough housing and too many people trying to get it, and the inevitable result is that prices have gone up, up, and away.
2: The median price of a home in San Diego County is now a staggering $830,000.
12: All around California, there are cities full of people who say that they are progressive, they're liberals. They believe in a more equal America, a more diverse America. They show up to the marches, they put in the lawn signs about everyone being equal, but at the same time, they're actively fighting to keep their neighborhoods looking like this. Okay, wait, but that doesn't look so bad. It's just a bunch of houses in a neighborhood, right? No, it turns out that this is actually the result of specific policies, intentional policies that keeps these neighborhoods spread out and full of single family homes, as opposed to higher density buildings like duplexes or apartment complexes. This is a real serious fight and you can get a glimpse into it by looking at a zoning map. Yes, we're looking at a municipal zoning map of Palo Alto, California. Don't leave yet. This is really where it sinks in. So just stick around. So everything on this map that is yellow is zoned for single family homes like this and this. One family can live here. But here in Palo Alto, there are a lot of new jobs. This is a desirable place to live for new opportunities. Over the past eight years, the San Francisco area has added 676,000 jobs, but only 176,000 housing units. So a few years ago, the city council voted to change the zoning of one section of the city right here. Specifically, this two-acre plot of land. They wanted to change it from low-density housing to higher-density housing so that they could build a 60-unit affordable housing complex for elderly members of the community. Okay, so they changed the zoning. Start building the 60-unit complex. No, the overwhelmingly liberal residents of Palo Alto decided to hold a vote to overturn the decision, to revert it back to low-density single-family housing. Back to yellow. And it passed, and the zoning was overturned. So now when you go to this plot of land, instead of an affordable housing complex for the elderly, what you're gonna see is this, a row of just a few houses all of them massive and worth around $5 million each.
11: I think people aren't living their values. You go to these meetings in these neighborhoods where they're talking about a new housing project and it's always the same song. And it goes like this. I am very in favor of affordable housing. We need more of it in this community. However, I have some concerns about this project.
1: We have the hearts to do this, but we're doing it wrong and we're dictating and harm onto the neighborhoods.
11: And then off we go with the concerns and then nothing ever gets built.
12: This is happening all over California. And the result is that these neighborhoods are so expensive that they keep anyone out who isn't a part of this small group of super rich residents, many of whom bought their properties decades ago and who spend their time fighting vigorously to keep the value of their real estate assets super high.
0: If you wanna keep Palo Alto the kind of neighborhood and community that we all treasure, low intensity, low density, safe for kids to walk to
11: school, you've got to vote against Measure D. There's a, an aspect of sort of, of greed here and, and of uh, you know,
12: nervousness about actually sharing those opportunities. Democrats believe in a progressive tax system where the rich pay a larger share of their income than the poor. This is like the most basic policy vision of like a progressive movement. It's front and center in Democrats' policy platform.
11: But if you go and look at Washington state, what you find is that in Washington state, if you look at the the state and local taxes that people pay there, less affluent families pay a much larger share of their income in taxes than the wealthiest residents of Washington state. So people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, two of the state's most famous and wealthy residents, are in this lovely situation of of paying less in taxes as a share of their income than than the poor people who live in that same state. And this is a fundamental inversion of the values that the Democratic Party professes. There is no state with a more regressive system
12: of taxation than Washington state. And I'm talking like the most regressive, meaning Texas, which is like the conservative bastion of like anti-taxes, is more progressive than Washington state, liberal Washington state. How is that real? Oh, and guess what? Other states on our map also are in the top 10 of most regressive tax regimes, like Nevada and Illinois. There have been some changes,
11: particularly in recent years, but the overall situation remains resistant to change. So I am very concerned that at this time, which is a very poor time to disincent people from creating jobs in Washington state that we're even considering it. From that paycheck that you earn, More of that money is going to state government. And so the effect of that is basically to exacerbate inequality.
12: Okay, so rich liberals don't show up when it comes to housing or taxes. Another major theme in this policy document is education. And the wording in here I find quite interesting. The Democrats say, quote, we must provide world-class education in every zip code to every child because education is a critical public good. They use this word zip code to represent the fact that in America, schools get their funding based on the real estate taxes of the houses within that school district. The more expensive the neighborhood, the more funding goes to the school. So over here in Illinois, which is like the quintessential liberal There's this one county that contains the city of Chicago, it's called Cook County. The residents here voted overwhelmingly for Democratic candidates in the presidential and senatorial elections last year. Often what would happen is that this would just be one big school district and that all the taxes from all the towns in this county would be put into one bucket and distributed equally throughout the county. But the residents of this very blue democratic county have actually decided to divide themselves into more than 140 school districts. So now you have all these tiny school districts like this one, which are like gerrymandered around the richest part of town. And so all of the taxes from these rich homeowners go into one little bucket and then only get distributed Distributed to the schools within this rich region of the county. It can be on the same block that the town line runs
11: through the middle of it. And if you live on one side of that line, you're consigned to an inferior education by virtue of the fact that you and your neighbors don't have as much money. And if you live on the other side, you're basically a member of a club that is sponsoring a private school essentially for the benefit of that small group of kids who are lucky enough to live in that affluent community. And the result is that poor communities have less money to educate their children, and rich communities have more money to educate their children. This is crazy. It means basically that the kids who have the greatest needs have the fewest resources.
12: The same thing is happening in wealthy liberal Connecticut, where the inequality in education opportunities is shameful, with some schools having huge budgets for their libraries and facilities, and others in the same state having to use duct tape to keep wind and snow out of their windows. Like this is a real thing.
10: We need your help in establishing guidelines, procedures, and funding to address issues negatively impacting our students, like extreme temperatures, mold, lead exposure, and poor water and air quality.
12: So yeah, Binya tells me that the states could change this. They could actually just collect all the real estate taxes and then equally distribute them. But if you look at some of our liberal strongholds, that is exactly what they are not doing. Let me be clear about something. In blue states, progress is being made albeit slowly. For instance, a few weeks ago, California finally passed a law that gets rid of single family zoning. It's a small step in the right direction. And in many cases, blue states provide more and better public services and historically have given better chances to low income families to climb the economic ladder. But for some of these foundational democratic values of housing equality, progressive taxation, and education equality, Democrats don't actually embody their values very well.
10: We're talking, once again, about a system that's been rigged.
8: Republicans today are to blame.
12: What we're talking about here is that blue states
11: are the problem. Blue states are where the housing crisis is located. Blue states are where the disparities in education funding are the most dramatic. Blue states are the places where Tens of thousands of homeless people are living on the streets. Blue states are the places where economic inequality is increasing most quickly in this country. This is not a problem of, of not doing well enough. It is, it is a situation where the blue states are the problem.
12: Affluent liberals tend to be really good at showing up to the marches and talking about how they love equality. They're really good at putting signs in their lawns saying that all are welcome here. But by their actions, what they're actually saying is, yes, we believe in these ideals, just not in my backyard. We are not living our values. People who
11: live in blue states, people who profess liberal values, you need to look in the mirror and and need to understand that they are not taking the actions that are consistent with those values, not just incidentally, not just in small areas, but that some of the most important policy choices. We are denying people the opportunity to prosper and to thrive and to build better lives, and it is happening in places where Democrats control the levers of policy.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Citations Needed looking at the framing of economics as a cold, hard science. The Majority Report looked at our current neoliberal age through the lens of the New Deal era it came out of. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour talked with Noam Chomsky about the funding of elections and the legacy of union busting. Citations Needed discussed economic coercion amid the pandemic. Ralph Nader continued to talk with Noam Chomsky about repealing neoliberalism and moving toward cooperative ownership. Economic Update looked at the triple bottom-line business model in conjunction with cooperative ownership. And the Majority Report examined the fracturing of neoliberalism in the face of the pandemic. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the New York Times looking at the hypocrisy of wealthy liberals at the root of so many social ills in blue states. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you will receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
10: Hey Jay, this is Jade from upstate New York. I was so happy to hear such a good episode on disability issues. We had an email discussion about the needs for this kind of episode many years ago, but I didn't know what sources to use since we are so often a forgotten demographic. I've been wanting to share my situation on your show, and this seems like the perfect timing. I'll try to be brief, I am autistic, I used to make a passable living taking temporary work while also working as a musician. When I tore a wrist ligament on one of those jobs, I was sent for surgery and it was botched. I have 30% use of my dominant hand in severe chronic pain even after 5 more surgeries and more than a decade. It ended my music career and left me unable to find work. Because it happened in Oklahoma, an excessive tort reform meant I couldn't sue the doctor. It took me 2 years of fighting to get approved for disability payments, another year after that to get. Medicare, which means I just suffered without treatment for my wrist that entire time. I now live off of $775 a month plus food stamps. I want to get married, but they take away the very little I receive if I did, making me totally dependent on my other half. I went to college after my injury. I had to fight tooth and nail for accommodations, but graduated with my first biology degree with a 3.7 GPA. When I transferred and moved across the country for graduate school, everything was great on the tour and correspondence but they denied every accommodation when I arrived. I wasn't given note takers. I was left in the woods on a hike because my legs gave out when I was supposed to be on bed rest after an abdominal surgery. I was punished for having panic attacks while on a field work trip for three weeks because they gave me no time to work by myself. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I got the department of justice to act against the school. And while they said I was right about everything, the best they could do was have the school let me retake the inaccessible courses for free which I tried, and they were still inaccessible. On top of that, the school retaliated against me for reporting them. I got my $80,000 student loan bill discharged because the government considers me too disabled to work. If I'd been able to get the degree, there's a chance I could have. The world forgets disabled people in most cases. In others, it purposely tries to exclude us. At best, we are kept way, way below the poverty level. We absolutely need help. Thank you for spreading the word.
13: Hi Jay, this is Kwai from Cary, North Carolina, and I just wanted to uh, comment on the excellent job you did on presenting a logical, evidence-based response to the conservative that called in on episode 1459. You demonstrated that progressives are more interested in scientifically investigating how human nature actually works. And then, uh, just listen to your comment on 1460, you made another excellent point. About the way in which the right condescends to the left regarding the left's supposed lack of understanding of human nature and how that's fallacious and ad hominem attack used to avoid debating solutions to actual big systemic problems and how this protects the status quo. And so I was thinking about human nature, and I think this is really at a central dividing line. The framing of human nature is, is a really major distinction between conservatives and progressives on almost every major issue. And So a few examples I thought of back before gay marriage was legal, I think it's still today, some conservatives think, have the false notion that sexuality is a choice. But if you examine human nature, it's easy to test by asking yourself, how easy would it be for me to decide to have a different sexuality? You know, if you thought about that, assuming you're heterosexual and you try to imagine being gay or vice versa, that's not an easy choice to just arbitrarily make. So if the answer is that there are people that can choose and I can't, or or would be difficult for me to choose, then there would have to be two tiers of humans, those with a stable sexuality, presumably hetero in the case of conservatives, and those whose sexuality is less stable and they can end up making a wrong choice with the wrong influences. And if you think all about punitive systems like over-policing and harsh economic consequences that are designed into our systems, the caller that talked about choosing to be homeless or not to work because artificially imposed consequences. So again, just test it by asking yourself, is that why I'm not homeless? Is that why I choose to be employed or start a business? Is it because I'd rather live homeless, but and I know that there are police out there harassing me, so I'm assuming the answer is no for that caller. So there again would have to be two tiers of humans: those who have a natural tendency to choose not to be homeless, and those who need to be forced not to want to be homeless. And so then you think about power and, and identity politics, equity. So there's a thought on the conservative side that. Uh, if black people gain political and economic power, they would harm white people or otherwise disadvantage them. Or if women, as women gain political and economic power, they will harm men or otherwise disadvantage men. So, uh, testing that theory, I have to ask myself, is that how I would behave if the situation were reversed? If the answer is no, then there's again two tiers of humans those who wouldn't seek revenge after being under oppression and those who would. So I see this through line that if you're conservative, I think the core belief is there are at least two different tiers of humans. Humans that are quote unquote like me, and then there are others who are divergent, deviant, less intelligent, less moral, ethical, and just generally less worthy. And thinking this way blinds people to the inequities designed into systems. Their conclusion is Unequal outcomes just demonstrate unequal worthiness. The alternative to that point of view, if you're conservative, is that everyone's deviant, ignorant, immoral, unethical, unworthy. Either way, it's the systems and institutions that are not to blame, but the humans are. And the progressive point of view is that there's one tier of human beings. Human nature is dynamic and complex, and we're all capable of decisions and behaviors that are more helpful or moral, but not some arbitrary grouping. Progressives understand that systems are designed by humans to be more likely to encourage constructive decisions and behaviors versus destructive ones, and they can be and often are designed to favor one arbitrary group over another. And we know that every system must be continually examined and, when necessary, redesigned to achieve more constructive and equitable outcomes. And these two different basic framings of human nature are where capitalism, white supremacy, and Christian nationalism converge. White supremacy started as a means to justify the enslavement of Africans by creating two tiers of humans, white and black, superior and inferior, respectively. The central idea of Christian nationalism is there are two tiers of humans, Christians and non-Christians. The way they come together is with the proposition that systemic outcomes prove the inherent ranking of the tiers, obscuring the fact that systems were designed by certain humans to advantage those humans and those like them. Progressives take the opposite point of view, that unequal outcomes prove that systems were designed inequitably. So I think this is the core aspect of the dividing line, of the boundary between a deeply divided nation. It can be looked at as left versus right, but if you really want to cut to what's at the root, we have to take ourselves and those we're in dialogue with take a single question, which is, in terms of worthiness and intrinsic value, are there two or more tiers of humans or just one? The answer will funnel you into maintaining the status quo or working towards reimagining and redesigning systems wherever you find unequal outcomes between groups. Thanks, Jay. Stay awesome. Appreciate you.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So thanks to Jade for sharing her story and to Quai for all of his thoughts on human nature. I do have a little bit more to add. I thought I was done with this. But first of all, all that talk over the last two episodes about human nature and policies. And I never thought to bring up the war on drugs once. It didn't even cross my mind. Can you believe that? I mean, it's only the best example of what we're talking about here. But I also have thoughts on policies to manage human nature and if that's really what policies should be for. So, for instance, if if the rules we have in place, backed by... Punitive measures, when they're broken, are set to a standard that is higher than any group of humans has ever acted like in history. Is that a good set of rules? I suppose you could argue that we want to set rules that are something to strive for, uh, but there might be another way and there might be a dark side to that. Because if you have rules set up that you know, going into it are going to be broken all the time. It sort of creates this set set of lofty ideals that can then be used to perpetually prove the terribleness of humans in need of saving, in the case of Christianity as discussed previously, and to sort of scapegoat the failures of systems onto the backs of those individual terrible humans as in neoliberalism, which we heard a lot about today, and Kwai sort of touched on. And to be upfront, this is not a very original idea I am describing. If you want to hear a little bit more on it, check out the book, My Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. I just finished rereading it. I think the last time I read it was about 10 years ago and I wanted a refresher. And a major point that is made in that book is that rules designed to govern society shouldn't be such that sets people up for failure. Using the Ten Commandments as an example, it's a list of thou shalt nots, meaning that they should literally never happen. But as we know, they happen all the time. The argument being that this is a bad way to make laws and actually diminishes the idea of law or the respect for law itself. You know, we've been making millions of laws over thousands of years that we fully expect for people to break. And that means that we have no choice but to punish people for doing exactly what we expected them to. And when we write all these laws that we know people are going to break, people lose respect for the whole idea of law. The alternative vision put forward in the book is not to outlaw mischief is the word chosen to describe like anything bad. (laughs) It's It's to not outlaw mischief, but for the law to spell out How to undo mischief. So in modern terms, the closest thing I can think of that we have to this is restorative justice, which is focused much more on undoing harm to whatever extent possible and restoring society and the aggrieved parties as opposed to setting rules and doling out punishment. So talk about building policies that take human nature into account. Okay, now, actually, one last thing on this. I realized today that I haven't talked about this conservative political cartoon in years, but it is way too relevant to this discussion to leave out. I saw this single-frame political cartoon with a clear conservative perspective years ago, and I found it to be a great insight into conservative thinking. So I'm just going to have to describe it to you. A donkey wearing blue athletic clothes and an elephant wearing red athletic clothes, are both doing the high jump, and the political implications couldn't be more obvious. The bar on the high jump for both is labeled moral standards, but the bar in front of the donkey is set at ankle level, while the bar in front of the elephant is set at head height. The donkey is easily jumping over the low bar of moral standards in front of him, While the elephant is heroically leaping in an effort to clear the high bar of moral standards set before him, but alas, the elephant tips the bar and knocks it off, to which the donkey pronounces hypocrite. And for reference, this was from nearly 10 years ago, around the time, not exactly the time when megachurch pastor uh, Ted Haggard lost his job over his use of gay prostitutes and drugs. Uh, But it was sort of after that. It was in the wake of all of that. And this was also before the Supreme Court had legalized gay marriage and marijuana legalization was still pretty controversial. So you could read headlines. Like this one about uh, Pastor Kevin Swanson of Generations Radio saying that Democrats want to ensure, quote, everybody is committing homosexual acts and high on drugs, unquote. He also said that Democrats are deviously working to strip back government control over marijuana and homosexuality, quote, in order to maximize the immorality of the people and, quote, increase the size of government i mean of course you always gotta throw in a jab about the size of government all these liberal laws letting people do whatever they want with their own bodies and lives they clearly don't understand anything about human nature and the need for the church and government to squash it which which actually got me thinking is that what conservatives have meant this whole time that human nature is inherently evil and needs to be squashed Which is why liberal policies that cater to human nature are bad, while conservative policies that do nothing but harm people and go against human nature are actually good and righteous because it's human nature, which is wrong. We might actually be getting somewhere. I may have a clearer understanding of this discussion than ever before. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design. Webmastering and bonus show co-hosting, and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoflefe.com/slash support through our Patreon or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player.